Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a warm night in December of 1898, three siblings headed home from the town of Gatton, Australia, back to their family farm. As they rode down the dark rural road, they had no idea somebody was waiting for them, hidden behind the gate of a pasture. It's such a shame the dance was canceled. I knew this would happen. We went all that way for nothing. It's not that far. We're almost home. What was that? I can't tell. It's too dark. It's probably just an animal. Nora, take the reins. Mick, I'm scared. Everything's all right, don't worry. Excuse me, who goes there? Do you? Ah! Mick, are you all right? I'm fine, it missed. Nora, get back on the road. I can't, the damn wheel. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Gatton Murders three mysterious slayings committed near the town of Gatton, Australia in 1898. This week, we'll cover the background of the murders and the discovery of the crime scene. Next week, we'll cover the disastrous police investigation that followed and the increasing tension in the Gatton community. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On the 26th of December, 1898, three of the Murphy siblings set out for a Boxing Day dance at Gatton Hall, about an hour's wagon ride from their family home. 29-year-old Mick Murphy escorted his two sisters, Nora, age 27, and Ellen, aged 18, in a single horse cart down the dirt road at around 8 p.m. The siblings arrived around 9 p.m. to find the dance had been canceled. Disappointed, they turned around and headed back home. They never made it back to the family farm that night. On the following day, their bodies were found just one mile outside of town, All three had been severely beaten and bore signs of sexual assault. The killings shocked the small town of Gatton. The victims were well-liked, respectable members of the community. The murders became a sensational news story and even attracted the attention of the Australian federal government. Due to a series of investigative mistakes, local police failed to charge anyone for the crimes, even after a similar murder was committed less than two weeks later. For more than a century, one of the most gruesome triple murders in Australian history has remained unsolved. 
Before the brutal murder of three of their children, Mary and Daniel Murphy had been fixtures in the town of Gatton for over 30 years. The Murphys each immigrated from Ireland in the 1860s and met in Australia. Both were fleeing the consequences of the Great Hunger, a famine which hit Ireland and much of Western Europe starting in 1845. The famine was a consequence of tainted potato crops, infected by a microorganism that causes a disease known as potato blight. The disease devastated poor farmers throughout Europe, and especially in Ireland. Though the famine technically ended in 1849, its consequences lasted much longer. It led to a century-long reduction in the population of Ireland and the creation of Irish immigrant communities around the world. One such community was formed in Queensland, Australia. Daniel Murphy arrived there in 1864 and began working on laying the railroad between the towns of Ipswich and Toowoomba, a line that would one day run right through the center of Gatton all the way to the large town of Brisbane. Mary immigrated soon after Daniel and obtained work as a domestic servant. She met Daniel in 1865 when they were both 23 years old. They married the next year. Well, they were both passionate Irish Catholics, and their temperaments were well-matched. Daniel was an introverted, hard-working man who avoided confrontation. Mary, on the other hand, never shied away from a fight and gladly took the role as the head of the household. Over the next 17 years, the couple had 10 children together. Daniel diligently farmed a small plot of land and took up construction jobs on the side. By the 1890s, the family was prosperous and lived on a large rented farm, six miles south of Gatton. Most importantly to the elder Murphys, the family enjoyed a good reputation, which went a long way in a small town like Gatton. Located in the Lockyer Valley of Queensland, Australia, Gatton had a population of less than 500 in 1898. Despite its small size, Gatton still served as an important link between larger cities thanks to the railroad, which was completed in 1870. Passing trains brought a regular influx of travelers and entertainers to the town. The station itself soon became the social center of town for young people. Groups of teenagers often gathered to chat and eat with friends as the trains bustled around them. Adults, on the other hand, often met at the dog racing track, which proved to be the most prosperous business in town. Of course, Mrs. Murphy made sure her adult children stayed away from there. She was determined her family would adhere to strict Catholic morals and avoid gambling. For the most part, her supervision proved fruitful. Her family was well-respected and Mrs. Murphy was proud of her children. There was Michael, affectionately referred to as Mick, one of her elder sons, who was in his mid-twenties in the 1890s. He was a well-known bachelor in the area. He was popular and sociable, but was not known to have a girlfriend. He took on construction jobs from a young age to supplement his farm work like his father and had grown into a successful laborer. Mick worked on the Westbrook Experimental Farm, about 25 miles away from Gatton. After a lifetime of manual labor, he was physically imposing and had great self-confidence. Almost everyone in the community attested to his integrity, but he was also known to have a temper with those he didn't like. In his spare time, Mick volunteered as a mounted infantry sergeant and was called the smartest member of the regiment. By all accounts, he was a friendly, hard-working man when his temper was not aroused. Another responsible Murphy sibling was Nora, 
who was two years younger than Mick. She was as well-liked around Gatton as Mick, though she was also unmarried, a rarity for a woman of her age in those days. Her single status was likely due to the influence of her mother, who kept her very sheltered. Nora remained in the home most of the time, helping to keep the family household running. She was responsible for caring for six of her siblings, as well as two of her nieces. Her friends and family were always struck by her kind heart and eagerness to help others. But even she was not above petty squabbles. When she was a student, Nora was embroiled in a feud with a young school teacher. Nora wrote an anonymous defamatory letter about the woman and had it published in the local newspaper. She even dressed as a ghost on several occasions and threw rocks at the teacher's window to scare her. All these events, as well as her disinterest in socializing, made a few people who had met her feel she was rude and harbored a mean streak. But given how lovingly she cared for the young children in the family, it seems more likely that she was simply introverted and kept very busy by her overbearing mother. Most people had high opinions of her. Mick and Nora's younger sister, Teresa, who went by Ellen, was more extroverted. She was a vivacious young woman, only 18 years old when she died. Ellen was an excellent needleworker and had many friends. She eagerly attended social events in town whenever her mother would allow, which was not often. Mrs. Murphy took a hard line when raising her children. She was very religious and harbored an intense prejudice against Protestants, much like many of the Catholic families in the Queensland community. Under her instructions, the family attended church a minimum of once per week. Even outside of the church, she watched her sons and daughters like a hawk. They were largely forbidden from associating with children who did not have an Irish Catholic heritage. As such, the children had limited opportunities for friendship and romantic connections. There were few other Irish Catholic families nearby, and Mrs. Murphy considered a marriage outside the faith unthinkable. So when her eldest daughter, Polly, eloped with a Protestant butcher named William McNeil in 1896, Mrs. Murphy excommunicated her from the family without a second thought. Then when 30-year-old Polly gave birth to a baby girl just two months after her wedding, Mrs. Murphy became furious not content to just cut her own daughter off, Mrs. Murphy blew up at Polly in public to embarrass her. You tramp! You streetwalker! Mother, please. You lay in the dirt with McNeil before he married you? We're married now. Don't you want to meet your granddaughter? We're all part of the same family. I'll never be family with the McNeils. They're nothing but Protestant pigs. The father is living with his daughter, and the mother is a cow. Ugh! You are impossible! It seemed nothing would repair the relationship between Polly and her mother. Well, then, two years later, in 1898, tragedy struck. During the birth of her second child with William, Polly fell out of the bed. She landed on her back and was left permanently paralyzed on one side of her body. The injury was debilitating, but it brought the Murphy family back together. Mrs. Murphy took her grandchildren into the family home. She and Nora, her second eldest daughter, helped take care of the two children. In November of 1898, Polly was released from the hospital and began living in the family home full time. There she could receive around-the-clock care, which her husband couldn't provide while he worked. 
Unfortunately, just when things had settled down for Polly, her husband, William McNeil, suffered another setback. On November 1st, 1898, William left his butcher shop in Westbrook, about 25 miles from Gatton, and headed to the train station. He planned to take the train to Gatton to go visit his wife and children. He visited Polly several times a week ever since she'd been injured. The butcher shop was a small wooden building which had two bedrooms attached to the back. Before Polly's injury, it was where she and her daughter lived with William. That night, about an hour after William left, his brother and business partner, George McNeil, went by the shop and found it was on fire. By the time the fire was put out, the place was in ruins. All that could be found among the wreckage were a rifle and a tremendous number of empty bullet casings, which likely exploded during the fire. There were suspicions around Westbrook that George had started the fire for the insurance money. The building was insured for 160 pounds, and in November, the insurance company began an investigation to determine whether it had been deliberately burned. While the investigation was being carried out, William made frequent visits to the Murphy household to see his wife and daughter. His presence made an already full house more packed than ever and led to some passionate confrontations. We'll delve further into the conflict between William McNeil and his in-laws after this. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. In November of 1898, the large Murphy family near Gatton, Australia, was undergoing big changes. 32-year-old Polly, the eldest Murphy sibling, had moved back home after suffering an injury which left her paralyzed on one side of her body. Her husband, William McNeil, frequently visited to help care for her and their two young daughters, but was not exactly welcome in the family home. As a Protestant, he was bitterly disliked by most of the Irish Catholic Murphy clan. Aside from his chosen faith, his visits also irked the Murphys because it made the house even more crowded than usual. Despite most of the Gatton children being adults by 1898, many still lived at home. Only three of the ten siblings lived outside. Mick, who worked at the experimental farm, Patrick, who worked at an agricultural college nine miles away, and Danny, who was a police constable in Brisbane. There were only four bedrooms in the house, so siblings often shared beds or moved from room to room based on which sleeping areas were available. The children were used to the sleeping arrangements, but were not at all used to sharing their home with a Protestant. They despised William and blamed him for their sister's injury. 
That mindset slowly changed throughout November when William started visiting the home more often to see Polly. They ignored him as often as possible and sometimes took passive-aggressive actions like locking him out of the home, but over time began to more or less tolerate his presence. The only one who threatened the precarious calm in the household was Mick, the most outspoken of the family. Like his parents, Mick disapproved of William's faith and felt William drank too heavily. Mick himself didn't drink at all. Luckily, since he did not live at home, Mick rarely came into contact with William. But in mid-November of 1898, he made a weekend trip to visit his family. That Sunday, he convinced Polly to allow the family to carry her to the family buggy and come with them to Catholic Mass. William was livid, and the three of them got into a vicious argument. <laughs> Welcome back, Polly. Where have you all been? We just got back from Sunday Mass. You went to Catholic Church with them? After everything they've said about my faith? Polly can go to church where she wants. Since when do you care what she wants? You all had a problem when she wanted to be with me. William, I just wanted to get out of the house for a while. I'll still go to church with you. You will go to church with me if you seek salvation. I'm the man here. We go to church together when and where I say so. Oh, you're a man now, are you? Wish there had been a man around to catch my sister when she fell out of bed giving birth to your daughter. What did you say to me? William, don't. Well, despite the fight, William continued visiting Polly and his children throughout November. But in December, the visits had suddenly stopped. It's not known exactly why the visits stopped, but it might be explained by something that happened a few weeks before Christmas, when Ellen cheerfully rode with William to a party in Gatton. Hours later, she had returned with her brother Jerry instead of William. When Mrs. Murphy asked Jerry how William had gotten home, Jerry replied brusquely that he had no idea. When the family pressed him and Ellen for details, both refused to discuss the matter further. It's likely that William said or did something to offend Ellen at the party. He did not visit the family for weeks after that. In the meantime, the insurance investigation ended. It was unable to find hard evidence that the McNeil butcher shop had been purposely burned. And as such, William received a large sum of cash. William received a payout of 100 pounds from the insurance company on December 1st, the equivalent of about $16,000 today. He stopped working once he got the money and kept to himself in the town of Westbrook. But as Christmas approached, he asked the Murphy family if he would be allowed to visit again. In the Christmas spirit, most of the Murphys begrudgingly agreed to be civil to William during the holiday. William set off for the Murphy family farm on Christmas Eve of 1898. And he wasn't the only guest on his way. 24-year-old Patrick Murphy set off on the nine-mile trek home from Agricultural College to the family farm early Christmas Eve morning. Along the way, he stopped in Gatton and met some friends. They asked him to invite his sisters, Nora and Ellen, to a dance they were throwing on December 26th, Boxing Day. William McNeil arrived soon after Patrick. He traveled in an old single horse cart with a wobbly wheel. He was also told to invite Nora and Ellen to a separate dance 
in the town of Helidon, about 10 miles from Gatton. Along with invitations to the dance, William brought Christmas presents for Nora and Ellen, a horse's bridle and whip, respectively. Oddly, he had no gifts for his wife, children, or for Mary Murphy, who had been caring for Polly for the past couple of months. The owner of the shop where the presents were purchased stated that Mick had been with William when he bought the bridle and the whip. It's possible Mick even lent William money to pay for the gifts, as he wasn't known for his generosity. Considering the intense dislike both sisters held for William, it's probable that he sought to apologize for offending them at the party held weeks before. It is especially hard to believe that cheerful and easygoing Ellen would have had such disgust for William without good reason. Thus, at Mick's insistence, William may have bought them the bridle and the whip as a precondition to being allowed back into the household on Christmas. It's not known exactly what he may have done, but it was enough to make the women want to avoid him as much as possible. Well, luckily, the peace offering was enough. There was no fighting that night. Mick was the last of the family to arrive home. He got in at 10 p.m. and greeted everyone in the house warmly. They all breathed a sigh of relief when he showed no signs of tension at seeing William. That night, the Murphys and the McNeils coexisted peacefully. The spirit of Christmas and forgiveness was in the air. Though it wasn't exactly a lively spectacle of togetherness, there was certainly an atmosphere of relaxation that had not been present in the house for some time. But the next morning, Christmas Day, 1898, the tension returned. The entire Murphy family, except for the eldest daughter, Polly, dressed up and went to Mass. Polly might have wanted to go with the rest of her family, but William forbade it after the big fight between the two of them in mid-November. Keen to avoid another argument, Polly told her family ahead of time that she was not going to Christmas Mass. The family accepted her decision and did not urge her to come along, though they did linger in the doorway before heading off, in case she changed her mind at the last second. Most of the children attended the midday mass with their parents. The elder sons went in small groups by themselves throughout the day. The family spent the rest of the day resting and visiting friends. There was a big Christmas dinner prepared by Mrs. Murphy and Nora, as well as the opening of a few gifts, though most of the family could not afford expensive things. The tension of the morning once again passed by nightfall, and William was cautiously tolerated. It seems he was on his best behavior and talked excitedly with his in-laws about the plans for the next day. There was an annual Boxing Day horse race that most of the younger Murphys planned to attend, and then there was the possible dance in Gatton that night. William had even bought new leather dancing shoes and was eager to try them out. The family went to bed late. Some members had trouble falling asleep due to the oppressive heat, which had carried on into the evening. Little did they know that for a few of them, it would be the last time they would ever sleep in their own beds. But there was no hint of anything other than excitement the next morning. The children left early for the horse race, only a few miles away from the farm. Even Polly was carried to William's one-horse cart and brought along. Nora stayed behind with Polly's children and the youngest Murphy daughter, while the elder Murphys went to a nearby patch of land to do some farm work. The race was a big event, attended by many people in the surrounding communities. 
There was food, an outdoor bar, and bookies to collect bets. Mick was the most eager to attend because he was competing in a few of the races. He brought along his prized horse, which he had been training for months. Meanwhile, Ellen was making the social rounds. She was again invited to the two competing dances to be held on Boxing Day, one in Gatton and one in Helladon. Well, the dance in Helladon looked to be much more lively and well-attended, but Ellen decided she wanted to go to the Gatton dance. I can't wait for the dance tonight. Assuming Mom lets you go. She will, as long as Nora promises to go too. I hope you're right. What are you so eager for anyway, Ellen? It's probably going to be drab. The Helladon dance is supposed to be a lot larger. She wants to see that boy, Simon, play the fiddle. I do not. It's just Boxing Day, and I think we should all have a good time. She hasn't stopped smiling since Simon told her he was attending. Maybe I just like the fiddle. Or maybe I'm only thinking of others. People are counting on us to be there. I don't want to ruin their fun. (laughs) But not everyone could take a hint, apparently. Ellen had a wide array of admirers, including Joe O'Brien a nearby neighbor of the Murphys, and a known petty criminal. Unsurprisingly, Mrs. Murphy had forbidden her daughters from cavorting with a character like that. Nonetheless, Joe swaggered up to Ellen, Polly, and their friend, a young man named Willie, around 11 a.m., just before the first race was about to start. As Joe attempted to sweet-talk Ellen, Willie's expression soured. He knew Joe had spoken vulgarly about wanting to have sex with Ellen months prior. Joe was politely turned away. He left quietly, but the rejection seemed to get to him. He spent the next few hours getting steadily drunker and looking for a fight. Eventually, he found one. Hey, I want my money back. That horse never had a chance. Sorry, no refunds. You're welcome to bet on the next race if you want to make some cash. You think I'm a sucker? I'm just trying to do business. Yeah, well, your business is a scam. Hey, everyone! This guy's a cheat! You better shut your mouth, pal. What are you going to do, huh? You think I'm afraid of you? You keep talking and you're gonna be. I'll say whatever I want and you won't do a damn thing about it. You know why? Because you're nothing but a... Luckily, Joe's fight was the only one of the day. The rest of the race passed by quietly. Mick got second place in one of his heats, and the Murphys returned home in good spirits by 7 p.m. Almost as soon as they walked in the door, Mick and Ellen were rushing to get ready for the Gatton dance that night. Ellen to see her crush, the violinist, and Mick to enjoy some time with friends before he headed back to the Westbrook Experimental Farm. Among the other prospective Gatton dance attendees were Ted Chadwick and the Jordan brothers, Stephen and Tom, who were all members of the volunteer mounted infantry like Mick. But Mick and Ellen had a difficult time convincing Mrs. Murphy to let them go. She hated to let her children go out after dark, even though they were all adults. But Mick and Ellen won her over by pointing out that Nora had been stuck at home all day with the children. Mary begrudgingly agreed to let them go to the dance as long as they were back in two or three hours. William offered to drive the others to the dance and accompany them home. He was eager to break out his new dancing shoes, but Mick, Ellen, and Nora convinced him otherwise. He was very drunk from spending the afternoon at the horse races, and there was bound to be friction between him and Mick if William came along. 
Are you sure you don't want me to drive? I don't mind waiting while you have fun at the dance. Sorry, but we're in a hurry as it is. Well, I mean to help with that. You want to help, McNeil? Spend boxing night with your wife and daughters. I can handle driving. Fine. See that you don't damage my cart. The thing is held together by rope as it is. Rest assured, we can't do anything to it that hasn't already been done. Well then, Merry Christmas. The trio of Mick, Nora, and Ellen were so determined to exclude their brother-in-law that they squeezed into William's single-horse cart, despite the fact that the Murphy family owned a two-horse buggy which would have easily accommodated the four of them. Mick saddled up one of the Murphy horses, a partially deaf stallion named Tom, and they trotted off into the night at 8 o'clock. William was disappointed at being excluded and acted moody for the rest of the night. Mrs. Murphy tried to console him, but he was determined to keep it to himself. As it would turn out, his behavior in the hours before the murder would turn him into a major object of suspicion. We'll hear more about the lead-up to the brutal murder of the Murphy siblings after this. And now, back to the story. Mick, Nora, and Ellen Murphy were giddy with excitement on December 26, 1898. They traveled down the wide dirt road to Gatton, Australia in their best outfits. Throughout the hour-long journey to town, they chatted and teased each other playfully about their prospects at the Boxing Day dance. Fifteen shillings jingled in Mick's pockets, worth about 100 U.S. dollars today. The money was to cover admission and drinks for himself and his sisters. Meanwhile, it seems the rest of the Murphy family prepared for a quiet night after the busy day. There are a couple of different versions of the family's activities in the home before bed. And we'll start with the official version, which was later included in the police report. Polly went to bed first, as she was not feeling very well. Her younger sister spoke to her for a while in her room and then came out to read before bed. William sulked and played with his infant daughter on the outdoor stoop until around 9 p.m., and then went back into the bedroom with Polly. Polly said William slept in his clothes that night, possibly because he was still drunk. Mr. Murphy spent an hour in silent prayer, as he usually did before bed, then smoked outside and retired to his bedroom. Mrs. Murphy stayed up late tending to her grandchildren. Gradually, a few of the other Murphy children filtered into the house, home late from the races, and were in bed by 11. Mrs. Murphy entered Polly's room to put out a lamp and saw William in bed with his wife around that time. She was up until around midnight before she finally put the baby to sleep and returned to the master bedroom. Well, this story contrasts sharply with a few stories neighbors later reported to the papers and the police. One woman told investigators that she heard Polly say William was out for most of the night, not in bed with her sleeping. Another townswoman said that she had been told William had slept in a spare bedroom that night instead of with Polly. She claimed he left the house and had not returned until 3 o'clock the next morning. A third version of the story related to police by a neighbor named Mrs. Daly claimed that William had refused to leave a spare bedroom despite Mrs. Murphy urging him to join the family in the sitting room. After that, no one saw William until 6 o'clock the following morning. 
No matter what William was doing afterward, at 8 p.m. on the 26th, the Murphy siblings set off on the road, preparing to arrive fashionably late to the dance. It was supposed to start at 8 o'clock that night, and they had a long way to go. For Ellen especially, the ride was filled with anticipation. She looked forward to seeing Simon play the fiddle and frequently encouraged Mick to drive faster. As they traveled, they ran into a lot of traffic on their way to the dance hall. Although it was dark, many families were just now returning home from the races. A few of them passed by the Murphys as they rode towards Gatton. Almost all of them noticed a strange man in black on the road a few miles from town. A man who seemed to take a particular interest in the Murphy's cart as it rode past. One such person was Margaret Carroll, the owner of a fruit shop in Gatton proper. She was riding home from the day's horse races with her 13-year-old son John and her assistant, 14-year-old Mary Callanan. Margaret remembered traveling alongside the Murphy clan for quite a while. Their two carts passed the entrance to the Moran family horse pasture, only a couple miles from Gatton, around 8.45. At that time, she noticed a strange man walking headlong on the road toward the Murphy cart. The man walked extremely close to the Murphy's cart, who had to slow down to a trot when he approached. He wore a dark coat and had a felt hat pulled low over his brow. Neither Margaret nor her son could see his face. Their assistant, Mary, was in the back of the cart and did not notice the man at all. At first, Margaret's son, John, thought the man was a local butcher, but was not sure. Margaret noticed a dark object in the man's hand, but could not tell what it was. She remembered the incident vividly because of how close the man passed next to the Murphy's horse she noticed that he immediately turned to watch the siblings as they trotted by. They were not the only ones to see the mystery man near the entrance to the Moran pasture. A local woman, Florence Lowe, was returning home down Tent Hill Road around 9.15 when she saw him. She stated he walked slowly past her side and muttered something. She couldn't understand what he said and kicked her horse to speed past. Florence was the only one to get a look at his face. She stated he had a large mustache but otherwise unremarkable features. Still, she was confident she would recognize him if she ever saw him again, on account of the distinctively sinister tone of his voice. It made her nervous even when she had ridden well past him. Her story coincided with remarks made by Margaret Carroll, as well as Thomas Drew, who was helping his drunk friend, Mick Donahue, make it home to Gatton that night from the race. Thomas saw the mystery man walking by the Moran pasture away from Gatton sometime before 10. Thomas greeted him as he staggered past, but the man made no reply. Thomas assumed he was drunk and paid him no mind. He was not able to give a detailed description of the man later. 17-year-old Arthur Brooking, on the other hand, got a good look at the stranger, just like Florence Lowe. He claimed he heard a gunshot around 8.30, just before he passed Moran's pasture. Then he saw the man who he described as 5'8 and wearing a coat and hat. The timelines of these various sources are all estimates because it was uncommon for men at the time to wear a watch, and practically unprecedented for a woman to carry one. Usually, only wealthy men wore watches daily. 
common people wore them solely on special occasions. Still, by all accounts, we can be reasonably sure a shady character was lurking outside of Gatton, near the pasture, for a suspicious amount of time before 9 p.m. And if Margaret Carroll is to be believed, he came dangerously close to colliding with the Murphy cart as they rushed towards town. We can, however, trust the timeline of events given by the dance organizers as they were paying close attention to the time while waiting for guests to arrive. As it turned out, they mostly waited in vain. The organizers, Ellen's crush Simon and three other young men who lived in town, arrived at the Tarampa Divisional Hall, where the dance was to be held around 7.30, to light the lamps and clean the floor. They awaited the arrival of their guests, but when 8 o'clock rolled around, they were sorely disappointed. Only two of the 14 women invited were at the railway station on time. Soon, two more arrived, but it hardly made for much of a party. It seemed most of the invited went to the competing dance in Helidon instead. The guests stood around awkwardly, debating what to do next. Well, it looks like this is all of us. I can't believe I got all dressed up for this. If we wait a bit, more people will show up. I heard Ellen and Nora Murphy were planning on coming. Their mother probably told them no. You know, they aren't even allowed to go out riding without one of their brothers following them around. There's no harm in waiting. I came all the way out here. I want to play some fiddle. Simon, I think you just want to see Ellen. What if I do? You were just saying you got all dressed up. Don't you want to dance? You do look beautiful. Ugh, fine, I'll wait. But I'm not staying past nine unless someone else shows up. If there are only five or six couples here, then you can keep your fiddle in its case. By nine o'clock, no one else had joined them. The Murphys were almost to the hall, but nobody had any way of confirming their attendance. Ellen had already made it clear she was unsure if she could get her parents' permission to come. So those who waited assumed the Murphys were a no-show. Reluctantly, the crowd dispersed and the lamps were snuffed. Mick, Nora, and Ellen reached the dance hall about 10 minutes after 9 p.m. The siblings could tell the dance was a bust right away. Looks like the lights are out. I told you to go faster. What a bother. Maybe we can still catch them. They might be around here somewhere. It's a bust. Nobody showed up. We should have gone to the other dance after all. Let's just go home. I'm tired anyway. When am I going to get another chance to wear this dress? There will be other dances. Not that Mom will let us go to any of them. <laughs> oh, fine. Let's go home. Giddy up! One of the dance organizers, Ted Chadwick, was handing over the keys to the dance hall back to its caretaker when he saw the Murphys' rickety cart heading up the road. He called out to them, but the Murphys apparently did not see Ted. All they saw was the deserted dance hall. They turned their cart around and galloped back down toward Tent Hill Road from whence they came. Mick, Nora, and Ellen never made it home that night. The next morning, Mr. Murphy was the first to wake up. He noticed that the horse and the cart were gone and wondered what the children were up to. The rest of the family rose not long after dawn. They all went about their daily chores on the farm without paying much mind to their siblings' absence. 
Only William McNeil seemed concerned that the trio had not returned. He feared that the wobbly wheel on his cart had come off, and they had been forced to spend the night on the side of the road. His worries were mostly ignored. The roads were not known to be particularly dangerous, and everyone knew Mick and Nora, at least, were responsible. But William continued to press the issue until Mrs. Murphy finally agreed that someone should go out and look for them. William left the Murphy home around 8 o'clock that morning. He rode to the nearby creamery. The man there, John, delivered cream to the homes in the area every morning, including to the Murphys. John said he had not seen the cart or the missing siblings on his route. William then went down Tenthill Road, calling out for his in-laws. He had been riding for almost an hour when he noticed tracks on the road. He recognized them as belonging to his own cart. The wobbly wheel made distinctive ruts in the road, which he followed easily. William traced the ruts into the Moran horse pasture. There, he lost the trail in the grass and spent about half an hour wandering in the woods on the other side of the pasture. He picked up the tracks again in the woods. Up ahead, about 150 feet away, he saw his cart and three people laying on the ground. William assumed that they were sleeping and called out to them as he approached. He got closer and saw their clothing was partially ripped off. Even closer, and he saw ants congregating around the bodies. He couldn't bring himself to come closer than a few feet from Nora's body, which was the nearest to him. He now saw she was dead. She lay on a rug and her face was cut and bloody. Her skirt was hiked up and the front of her blouse was torn off. The other two siblings in the cart were arranged behind Nora in a triangle, about 25 feet away from her body. Mick and Ellen lay back to back. Both had sustained brutal head wounds. Their hands were bound by handkerchiefs. The horse and cart formed the third point of the triangle. The horse had been shot, but William did not get close enough to notice. He only stayed long enough to see everyone was dead. Then he turned around and galloped away. William rode hard into Gatton and stopped at the Brian Baru Hotel, where he knew the owner. Charlie! Charlie! William? What's wrong? Where's the police station? Well, what for? The three Murphys are lying dead in the pasture. There must have been an accident because the horse is dead too. What? Where? The Morn pasture, in the woods. Hurry, Charlie, please. William got directions to the station and raced to see Police Sergeant Errol. He told the sergeant there had been some kind of accident. He had not inspected the bodies closely and later claimed he had not noticed the victims had their hands tied behind them. He did not want to call it a murder without knowing for sure. William led Errol to the scene, but they weren't the only ones heading in that direction. As soon as William left the hotel, his friend Charlie and three other men had saddled up and gone towards the place William had described. The two groups met up, and the six men went together to the place where the bodies were left. William stayed just long enough to show the sergeant the grisly scene, and then rode back to the Murphy farm to tell the family what had happened. Sadly, it was only the beginning of the calamities which would befall the Murphy family and the community of Gatton. The police began an inquiry to hunt down the culprit, but the investigation would be plagued by oversights from the beginning. Evidence would be destroyed, 
the autopsies would be bungled, and the lead investigator would allow his prejudices to overrule his logic. As the community panicked and rumors swirled, things only got worse. An innocent man would be jailed and the true murderer would never be held accountable. The case was so mishandled it would lead to a countrywide probe on the state of the police organization. The tragedy of the Gatton murders was just beginning. Next episode, we'll try to identify those who really were behind the Gatton murders while exploring theories about the motives of the killer. Including some which contend that the Murphy family was not quite as respectable as it seemed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Tara Wells and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens Diamond, Susanna Corrington, Heston Mosier, Mani Bramon, Brett Schneider, and Jack Shulruff. <laughs>